0: Right, welcome, everybody. This is Derek Bodner, joined once again by Mike O'Connor on this week's Sixers beat, a part of the CLNS media network. Uh, I am glad that we are doing this podcast now, rather than earlier in the week after they had lost to the Orlando Magic, their second consecutive really bad defeat. Uh, came back with a nice bounce back win over the Brooklyn Nets, a team that gives them a lot of trouble. Uh, and then a win on the road against the Minnesota Timberwolves without Joel Embiid and in front of the crazy lunatic group of the rights Ricky Sanchez. How you doing, Mike?
1: I'm good, man. Um like you said, happy to be uh happy to be doing this after a couple of uh not just Sixers wins, but relatively uh uneventful and not dramatic with a bunch of blown lead Sixers wins. Uh it's, it's kind of a rarity this year.
0: Both games, I think the Wolves and the Nets, you know, threatened a little bit there in the fourth quarter, uh, but they managed both of those. And like I was saying before the podcast, it's nice to not have to talk about a game in, in, in against the Magic where how much do we care about a game that the team didn't apparently care too much about? So it's always hard to judge at this time of year. They're now sitting sit, relatively pretty with a five-game lead in a loss column over both the Pacers... And the Celtics with six games left to play. Boston does have the tiebreaker on that. So their magic number to finish ahead of the Pacers is one game, either one Sixers win or one Pacers loss. And for the Celtics, it is two games and then they will clinch that coveted third seed in the Eastern conference.
1: That they will. Um, and I think, I think it's pretty safe to say, I don't think there are any, any risk of jinxing it now, but that should be where they end up. And uh, it sounds like Boston is even it's weird. They don't even seem to care about seating, even though they're like tied with Indiana. They they're they say they're gonna rest Horford a few more games, they're gonna rest Kyrie a few more games. Um so I I would be very surprised if uh if a New York Mets two thousand seven esque collapse were to occur here.
0: <laughs> no, that would that would be very surprising. Even with Joel Embiid sitting out, he is scheduled to sit the next two games on this road trip due to quote-unquote, load management, um, rest, what we used to call rest back in the day. Uh, You know, at some point in NBA terminology, we went from rest to load management and from flu-like symptoms to gastroenteritis. And I don't particularly care for either of those two uh, shifts. You know, I almost wonder, like, load management almost sounds more scientific than rest. And clearly there's a lot more sports science going into these decisions. But, like, you know, that I think these players run, like, about two to three miles per game per game, when you, when you factor, uh, when you look at the tracking data and it's not like, it's not like you or I going on a two or three mile run. That's like, stop, start, you know, pivot, accelerate, decelerate. Like there's a lot more that goes into it. I think most people can understand, Hey, you've got the seven 280 poundish guy. Um, if you can save 10 miles of wear and tear of, like I said, sprinting, stopping, turning, If you can see that kind of wear and tear on his body, especially when he's been dealing with a sore knee, it makes sense to do so. I don't really know if you have to um, wrap that in load management. Although I guess if, uh, if if you're the type who doesn't see where rest could be beneficial, you probably don't care about what terminology you're using anyway. So Joel Embiid will be resting. He will not be playing either of these next two games. Even with that, the Sixers should be able to pick up two wins over these next six games and put everything to bed, which is good, I guess, first, I mean, first of all, it's clearly good that they're going to miss the Boston Celtics in the first round. I don't think that was a matchup anybody wanted. The Pacers, you can debate whether you'd rather play the Pacers without Oladipo or the Nets. Um, I think there's some debate to that. I think the Nets are a lesser team, but the matchup problems, um, you know, factor into that. But certainly missing the Celtics in that first round is good. And more importantly, getting the home court advantage against the Celtics, if they do miss later on, will certainly be beneficial.
1: Yeah, which is possible. I mean, if Boston somehow clicks in the playoffs and they beat Milwaukee and the Sixers are able to get past whatever first round team they face, plus Toronto, um, I'm sure that's the, the matchup that the NBA wants to see. They really seem to be uh, drumming up the Sixers Celtics rival- rivalry this year. Um, but yeah, like you said, I, I think that uh, I think it's good that Embiid is going to get a couple of rest games here, um, especially given you know how little these games seem to matter. But it is definitely a a reminder of how much they overworked him earlier this year, um, and I know everybody was this was this was very well discussed at the time. Um, but you know they had such a a heavy early season schedule, um, just in terms of you know the dates of games they played like five back to backs in the first two months of the year, um, and you know I think everybody at the time could acknowledge that. Playing and beat as much as they were was was a mistake, and uh, you know I don't I don't think it'll be something that we discuss a whole lot moving forward. But I think this rest is something that probably should have been more evenly distributed throughout the year.
0: Yeah, and look, you've got um, even going beyond those those next two games. Your last four games of the season include the Mavs, who have lost twelve of fourteen games. Two games against the Bulls, who have lost nine of their last 11, uh, and a rematch, um, or and also the Miami Heat. So not exactly a tough schedule. They should be able to pull out, quite frankly, of those four games, they should be able to win three of four, even with them beat out of the lineup. Um, so I wonder if this is even the end of the rest. You know, there's always, you want to get them back on some sort of a rhythm heading into the playoffs, although... Tom Haberstrow had an, uh, you know, a good article showing that momentum doesn't really carry over all that often into the playoffs, especially when you're going to talk about, you'll know, probably have a solid three or a four day rest, maybe even a little more of that after the end of the regular season. So, you know, how much you can carry over, we'll see. You would want to get him back for some of these games. You don't want him out for, you know, a, a week and a half, two weeks without playing, uh, especially for somebody like Embiid who can, you know, sort of get out of shape relatively quickly. But another game or two in that last home stretch could be a could certainly be a possibility. So we'll see. We'll see how much they play. We'll see how much they can get JJ Redick some rest. Maybe even Jimmy Butler or Ben Simmons, although Ben Simmons almost never looks like he needs the rest. But it will be good to get, you know, a little, little, little less wear and tear, a little more fresh legs for these playoffs, which are going to be very important. All right, moving on to last night's game. Um, you know, a, a solid win over a... Minnesota team, which had just beaten the Warriors, a uh, little bit of controversy in that game, but you know, they played relatively well against a, a, a really good opponent, uh, without the Sixers best player in Joel Embiid and starting a rookie center in Jonah Bolden, who hadn't really been in the rotation for quite a while now, uh, really since Embiid came back to the lineup on March 10th. And obviously we'll start there. Jonah Bolden was the story of the night. Uh, finished with what 19 points, eight rebounds, three assists, and three blocks off the top of my head. It shouldn't be off yep. the top of my head. I should have that box score right in front of me. Uh, but he came out strong, had two threes and a put back dunk in the opening quarter finished really strong with two crucial threes in the final minutes to kind of keep that Minnesota push at bay and came up with some pretty big blocks as well. Mixed in with the typical rookie Jonah Bolden struggles. Um, I'd say probably quite easily the best game of his NBA career.
1: Yeah. I mean, he's had – I think he's had a few games like in that territory. I think the Warriors game back in, I think, February, maybe late January uh, was also one of his best games. And then the last time they played the Timberwolves back in January, he had had like four or five threes or something like that. Um, But, yeah, I think like games like those are – really like the crux of my case for Jonah Bolden should be the backup center in the playoffs. I mean, the way I see it is this, you are going to get smoked no matter who you go with, with backup, with your backup center in a playoff series. But you're going to get, if you, if you, if you go with Jonah Bolden, you're going to get one game in the series. That's sort of like this, where you look at it and say, wow, Jonah Bolden really made a difference in that game. Um Like I said, it's not an ideal choice. You're probably going to get smoked no matter who you go with, but I think with Jonah Bolden, there's like, there's just like some upside potential for one game where he just kind of explodes like that, or even just makes like a couple of big blocks or something like that. Um, I don't think that, I certainly don't think Amir Johnson can do that. And I think that Bobon in the playoffs is just a huge concern, but, um, but yeah, um, th- that's something I'm sure we'll be talking a lot about, but I, it is really interesting that they decided to go with him, right? Because Wednesday at practice, Brett said that, I think you're going to see Boban as our backup center the rest of the year. And then he comes out and he starts Jonah Bolden. And he says that we wanted to make sure Jonah Bolden was matched up with Carl Anthony Towns, um, you know, minute for minute. I was real, I was just really surprised. It, it seemed like Jonah Bolden was dead and buried.
0: Yeah. I mean, well, he, I mean, he, he, he was dead and buried. Um, you know, I think there's probably part of it that Brett realizes that Boban for 30 minutes isn't something anybody wants outside of Carl Anthony Towns. Um, I think he probably just wants to keep Boban in his typical rotations and and give him that kind of comfort and consistency. Uh, And also some realization that there was only one center on the Sixers roster who had a chance of even remotely staying with, with, with towns. And that was Bolden. Um, You know, the backup center is one of the more difficult evaluations I've had lately. Uh, You know, back in, Mid to late February, I was all in on the, you got to let Jonah play through his, his struggles and his mistakes. You've got to evaluate him, see how much you can rely on him in the playoffs. Uh, for as much as he might make the wrong decisions, he was the only one physically capable of actually executing the scheme that they have and, and being a real contributor on the defensive side of the court. Consistent contributor. He was the only one who has that potential. And then you saw Embiid miss those eight games and you saw Bolden play and the more I focused in, the more you, you look at the Sixers horrible defensive rating with Bolden at center. And to me, it just like, it really started clicking like this isn't low sample size. He's out a position a lot. Um, and I don't think it's like a real knock against him. Like I think being a center, um, the easiest way to kind of explain that is that's almost like the point guard guard on defense. Like he can't only not be in lockstep with his teammates. He's got to see it before his teammates. He's got to communicate it out. He's really, you know, almost like a linebacker of a defense. And for him to be missing the rotation, it was just so consistent. Even last night, there was one where Butler got cross-matched in transition. Um, first of all, it shouldn't have happened. Like, somebody needed to call it out to him that he didn't need to pick him up. Uh, they needed to in the kind of direct traffic. And then there was no scram switch back to, you know, He ended up having Butler defending Towns in space on a post-up, and that was just never going to, Like, there's just so many of those little plays that Bolden misses or he's hesitant on, or he's late on, or his reads um, aren't correct. And it's tough because that's a real tough thing to ask a rookie big man who's just playing, you know, over in Israel last year. Uh, but he's also the only one physically capable of doing a lot of this stuff that you rely on. So it's, it's always been a real tough evaluation for me. Um, it's easier when Bolden makes five of eight or whatever it was, three pointers like that, At that point, you're basically, even if he doesn't get the rotations, you're sort of getting, like, a Mike Scott-level game from him with rim protection and rebounding. So it's a lot easier. And lately, I mean, I think he's been shooting, like, 47% from three since the All-Star break. Granted, on a a limited sample because he's not playing all that much. But, you know, I think he's made, like, 14 of his last 30 three-point attempts, which is, after what you saw at the beginning of the season, like I said, it makes him a little more playable because at least he's spacing the floor offensively even when maybe his defensive reads and rotations aren't quite there yet. Um, You know, I've always had a lot of interest in Bolden as the backup five. It's just at one point in March, I convinced myself, well, that's probably going to be next year and not this spring. And does that change from one good game? I don't know. Um, I think if it changes, it's just because there's no other real legitimate option on this roster. We talked about this last week. I've always been of the mindset that you can't have, you can't rely on Boban in the playoffs. Like occasionally short spurts, when the matchup sticks to dictates it, and that's not just, you know, the matchup, the center he's playing against, but also the, the, the perimeter creators he's playing against. When the matchup dictate dictates fine. Um, but I, I was never of the belief that you could count on Boban in the playoffs. It's always been, do you go with small ball or do you go with Bolden? And I've sort of gone back and forth on that. And I probably will still will until the playoffs, uh, get here.
1: Yeah. Um, the whole thing with Bolden's three point shot is interesting because, like you said, he came out this year and I think he was like he started one for the year like three, yeah, yeah one for eighteen, um, and he was shooting such a heavy ball. And I remember thinking at the time, like, there's no way this kid can shoot. And I went back and I looked, um, looked at his stats from his last two years overseas, and I added in um, every summer league game he's played, just every every game that we had on record for the last two years and he was around like 34%. So and I, that was on like over 300 attempts. So I, he he can shoot. He can shoot. I think I think that's legit. He can't shoot foul shots for some reason. He's been in like the 50 like the 50% uh the past 2 years, but he can shoot threes. Um so I, I am I am a believer in that even despite his uh his strange start. But um yeah, uh what were we saying? Oh yeah, Boban. Um yeah, I I just think you saw the Celtics game was a good example. I mean, they put Boban in the game, and the Celtics just ran three straight plays, three straight set plays for Horford threes, um, and and Boban just stood no chance. And that is exactly what's going to happen in every playoff series. The only team that they might face um, in the playoffs without a stretch five is uh the is e- either of the Nets or the Pistons, right? After that, every team is going to have a stretch five to put out there. Um, and, and that's just, it's not something he can do. And like I said, for a while, um, it seemed like Brett was just going to stick with him. Um, and, and he had said at practice that he was pretty locked in with going with Boban the rest of the year. But, um, you know, I I think it's a positive sign that whether it's Bolden or whether it's just going small ball that he's looking for alternatives and, you know, like in last night's game, how he wanted to match Jonah Bolden with Towns's minutes, um, so, yeah, I, I, like you, I think I'm going to flip-flop a couple of times or it, it might even take, you know, through game one of a playoff series. I mean, remember last year against the Heat, you know, I think game one uh, the Sixers came out with Amir as their backup center <clears throat> and then in the second half it was of, If game one it was Ersan then the rest of the, the playoffs it was Ersan. That's the kind of stuff that happens in the playoffs. You just get into a series and you might see like, 10 minutes of one matchup, and you're like, nope, that's that's not that's <laughs> yeah. not going to work. And you have and to make a change immediately.
0: It's been interesting. Brett's been real consistent on Boban being the backup center, but he's had a real quick hook in the second half. Like, Boban will come out, play his seven minutes in the first half, and then you'll see him for three minutes in the second half, or you won't see him at all in the second half, and Brown will adjust from there. And part of me is like, well, can't we just make that adjustment in the first half? Like, you know, you know <laughs> he's not going to play well against the Celtics to bring up your example can't we I mean why do we have to waste those seven minutes Um, but at least they're making that second half adjustment and look if Boban's coming out there and playing 15 plus minutes per night in the playoffs I think that's going to be a massive a massive mistake and we will criticize them for that the question is how do you you know what's the least massive mistake they have in their options and look I think like I said I think some people are going to listen to this and think that I don't like Bolden and I'm actually really super intrigued by Bolden I'm just not like I'm just not sure I can rely on him now and I don't even really think that's a, a negative in him. I think it's just a reality of being a rookie big man. Um so I it, 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 I'd love it if Bolden was sort of like the third guy that you could bring in for a change of pace for a couple minutes and you didn't have to rely on him. The problem is the second guy you can't rely on either. So it's a, it's <laughs> just a real tough spot for the Sixers to be in. Um it's uh that that's that center spot. I mean, we'll we'll say this a lot. That center spot was a uh, a real big miss in their last year of team building, both in Mike Muscala and in Boban and Boban's so much fun to watch. Um, he is, and everybody loves him, but he's a, he's a third center, a situational center. And the Sixers right now just have two, two third centers, which is, uh, you know, not great. All right.
1: Yeah. So moving on, uh,
0: really tough game from Jimmy, uh, four for 17 from the field, 12 points, did crash a glass, did, um run the offense at times. Um I think I haven't really followed up but I think you know his back might have been bothering him from that fall in, in in the opening minutes. Um but not the homecoming you would want. Uh Tobias Harris had a nice bounce back game which was great to see. Uh and probably the other main takeaway though was was Ben Simmons both in his own scoring and running the offense from the post something which we don't really see all that frequently anymore. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um I did want to ask you what was what was your uh perspective on Jimmy's back injury cuz I I wasn't sure I couldn't see like did Towns just bump into him and it was like like I guess like a contusion on that part of his back or did he twist it I mean I couldn't really tell from what I saw did you have any angle on that
0: No I don't I don't know if I have a great angle on it It would be great to you know we have Rich out there in uh in Minneapolis um and now he's heading to um, the next leg of the trip, he's heading to Dallas. Um, it would have been great to ask him about that. Uh, and I haven't really done enough prep the day after to get that question answered. Um, no, it's it's, it's a good question because, like always, it's is that going to linger? You know, what exactly was the nature of that injury? Um, you know, we'll see. And it, you know, maybe it's something where he sits, gets a little bit of rest. Um, probably more important is, is the day after and how that feels. Um, but no, I don't have a great sense on exactly how that happened either. It wasn't something I think I expected when the play occurred in real time.
1: Yeah, yeah, I guess we'll see. But um, yeah, like you said, it was um, it was good to see Tobias get back on track a little bit. Um, he hadn't had a three pointer in in three games, um, and he came out and drilled a couple of pull ups in the first quarter. Um, I, I don't, I couldn't pinpoint exactly why he was struggling the past several games. It just seemed like he kind of got phased out of the offense a lot. And, you know, obviously his, his three pointers weren't going down. Um, but it it was, you know, it was just strange that he wasn't more involved over the past several games, but, uh, but good to see him come out aggressive and looking for a shot. And, uh, and like you said, I, I think this was, this was a very good Ben Simmons game um, on both ends of the floor uh you know very efficient shooting night i think it was 8 of 11 um was really effective out of the post uh moving off the ball just really good all around game for him
0: yeah and so going back to something you mentioned in the last podcast which is that Embiid and Simmons now almost exclusively play together with these new lineups and when i was watching that game and you saw Simmons passing out of the post and you saw how well this team moved when Simmons is posting up compared to the stationary, intentionally stationary, um, floor spots they go to when when Embiid is posting up, and it's just a dynamic to the offense I like to see more of. It's one that's tough to do when Simmons is out there playing with Embiid, so I think that's why we've been seeing less of it. But over up until March 10th, which is when Joel Embiid came back from that eight game layoff because of his sore left knee. But Simmons had played almost exactly half of his time with Embiid and without Embiid. 50.2% of his minutes were with Embiid, 498 without. So almost a direct 50-50 split. Since Embiid came back, and in the games when both of them are available, um, Simmons had played, uh, I just had it, 222 minutes alongside Joel Embiid and only 29 minutes without Joel Embiid. Now he had you know, one game, this is now a second game where Embiid's missed, so that's kind of come back a little bit. But when the two have been available, they've been attached at the hip in a way that, you know, Simmons and Butler were almost earlier in the season. And, you know, by and large, all of the rotations, all of the main primary staggers, the starting lineup, the second group with Jimmy and Tobias, and then the third group with Simmons, Redick and Embiid, they've all, they've all won their matchups by and large. So it's hard to complain too much. But it would be nice to see a little more of that Ben Simmons, and it's easier to unlock that when he's playing without Joel Embiid.
1: Yeah, and it's easier to unlock that when he has a center who hits five out of seven threes, you know? That's true. That's uh, true. Really help really helps the spacing. But um but yeah, that that is a good point. I, I hadn't thought about that in terms of last night, but um I it just kind of furthers my sentiment that I'm I'm not a fan of staggering Simmons and Embiid together. I think there's an argument to be made that it's been good for Butler, although at the same time that does coincide with uh, with Harris's sort of slump. Um, but I just think that you're not maximizing either of Simmons or Embiid, um, and those are the two guys out of your five starters who are the most, I would say, maybe fit dependent is a bad word, but it, I mean I think it's accurate. I mean you need to surround. Those guys with as much shooting as you can, and neither of them are very good shooters. So, anytime they're both in the game, it's hard for either one of them to post up. And, um, and especially as it especially shows with Simmons, because, like you said, last night we saw how much movement was going on in the post and, and just how, how he had the ability to just pick apart a defense but if Embiid is going to be sitting there either in the dunker spot or in the corner with his man cheating way off of him it's really hard to get that kind of movement going so you know there there are a lot of reasons and I think we we kind of talked it down last podcast but uh i i wonder if they don't switch it up when it, whenever Embiid comes back at the end of this regular season because there are just certain matchups like you know it, If they were to play, say, like Milwaukee in the conference finals, you would have your two best Giannis defenders attached at the hip, and you would have to go minutes where your backup center is defending Giannis. Um, And, you know, there's just so much that goes into it, but I'm not, I'm not a huge fan of staggering Simmons and Embiid together. Give, give both of them some time to breathe without the other one.
0: Yeah. It's tough because like, on the one hand, I just mentioned how I like seeing Simmons, You know, kind of facilitate the offense from the post. On the other hand, you know, last year with Embiid and Simmons on the court, they had a 110.6 offensive rating. This year with Embiid and Simmons on the court, they have a 110.4. That's higher than either the team with Embiid but no Simmons or Simmons with no no Embiid on both years. Like, both years, it's been best offense has been Simmons and Embiid. Second best has been Embiid by himself. And the worst has been Simmons without Embiid. And it's been pretty consistent, although... The uh, the Simmons numbers have come up as you've added more talent around him, which you would expect for a a point guard like that. Um, And actually, Embiid has been more efficient both years when alongside Ben Simmons. Now it's sometimes tough to draw a direct correlation to because you're usually like a lot of those minutes when they're on the court together, especially when they were so heavily staggered, were with starters and more talent around them. So you have to factor that in. But it's it's on the one hand, they've succeeded. On the other hand, watching the game, there is still that obvious, like, these don't mesh perfectly. Maximize how frequently they're able to run the offense themselves. Um, I do wonder if you could maybe get more shifting Simmons over to the Harris-Butler stagger, which is how Brown initially had it in the first five or so games following the trade. It will be something to watch. Um, But yeah, it was just just jarring to see how much of a different role Simmons had last night than he he had had previously to that.
1: That's true. That's true. But just to throw this out there, um, Ben and Joel have shown a really good two man game over the past, whatever, five games or so. Just, Mm -hmm. they've they've just been connecting on like a lot of lobs and uh, they've run some, some snug pick and rolls for, for Ben. And uh, you know, they, they definitely have been flashing a little bit of that, that chemistry and that connection that, that people are looking for.
0: Yeah, and I I think that's something you want to grow. So, Mm -hmm. like, you know, maybe there's a middle ground where it's not 50-50 on off with each other, and maybe it's like 60-40, but it doesn't quite have to be, like, 90-10 either. Like, I don't know. It's it's hard to, and at this point, I don't really expect them to change too much. Like, if Embiid comes back for the final three games, do I expect them to change their rotations? No, I think they're going to stick with what they had been sort of gearing up towards. I would just like to unlock, you know, Ben Simmons is such a tricky player in the half court, because of what his shooting can do to your offense, and specifically to Joel Embiid, that you want to find ways like those post ups to sort of make him more of a half court offensive contributor, uh, and and you know just a little moving the the needle a little bit to get slightly more out of him and, and to take away some of his weaknesses. But I mean, they're succeeding, so we'll see. All right, let's uh, real quick break for a word from our sponsor, and then we'll move on to a mailbag. This week's episode of the Sixers Beat is brought to you by Robinhood. Robinhood is an investing app that lets you buy and sell stocks, ETFs, options, and cryptocurrencies, all commission-free. While other brokerages charge up to $10 for every trade, Robinhood doesn't charge any commission fees at all. So you can trade stocks and keep all of your profits. Plus, there's no account minimum deposit required to get started, so you can start investing at any level. The simple, intuitive design of Robinhood makes investing easy for newcomers and experts alike, with easy-to-understand charts and market data, allowing you to place the trade in just four taps on your smartphone, while providing you with the ability to view stock collections such as 100 Most Popular. With Robinhood, you can learn how to invest in the market as you build your portfolio, discover new stocks, track your favorite companies, and get custom notifications for price movements so you never miss the right moment to invest. Robinhood has given listeners of the Sixers Beat a free stock like Apple, Ford, or Sprint to help you build your portfolio. Sign up at sixers.robinhood.com. That's sixers.robinhood.com. All right, so the first question is from Patrick on Twitter at PMC1423. Now that we've had some time to evaluate version 3 of the Sixers, what are your thoughts on the bench? Do you think Brown has 3 to 4 bench players that will be reliable in the playoffs? And if so, who?
1: Um, what are my thoughts on the bench? One can, of the worst benches be, in the league.
0: <laughs> yes. Certainly, no, among, no doubt. Certainly among playoff teams and certainly among contending teams. Um, we sort of talked about the bench a lot last week. We started off talking about it a little bit today. So I don't, you know, do they have 3 or 4 consistent contributors? No. Like they have one, hmm, one who's at least matchup consistent in Mike Scott, even if his game to game play isn't consistent. One who's relatively consistent, but not, you know, maybe maybe his talent level isn't that of a great uh, bench player, but he's at least consistent in what he provides you in James Ennis. Those are the most consistent bench players the Sixers have, and that right there is saying something, and that that that's a problem. Shows the problem of this bench. Uh, I mean, we've talked a lot. You can't play Boban against a lot of matchups in the playoffs. Bolden is, um, you know, he's, he's 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 a rookie big man, and TJ McConnell's effective against like twenty percent of the people he guards. Uh, it's, I mean, it's no, you don't have three or four consistently reliable bench players.
1: Yeah, the the one <clears throat> I haven't actually like gone through team by team and stacked up the Sixers bench against them, but. One that sticks out from recently is just I remember that Atlanta game and just looking at the box score and just thinking, wow, I would clearly take the Hawks bench over the Sixers. It's not even close. I mean, Kent Bazemore and DeAndre Bembry, those would be the Sixers' two best bench players right now. Um, Yeah, I I don't think there's any doubt they have a bottom five bench in the entire league. Um, I think that. It really, really would have helped this team to get someone like Wes Matthews or even Wayne Ellington um, just to have anybody that's offensively capable coming off the bench. Um, I, like I said to you at practice today, they're, they're like a walking thought experiment, man. <laughs> yes. They have like the best starting lineup in the league and the worst bench in the league, and like you, we're just going to find out how much that matters. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not at all optimistic <laughs> on the bench.
0: So that was a follow-up question from Brian Solomon at Brian underscore Solomon Uh, with a playoff rotation where the starters play more, how many bench players minutes do they realistically need in an average game? So to me, it's not even the quantity Uh, like you probably only need three to four bench players and where the starters, the depth of the starters come in is that you don't need them for all that long. Like, you might need James Ennis, but it might be for 10 minutes of James Ennis. And if he's playing poorly or, or making decisions that hurt you, you can take him out and stagger your rotations in a way where you can cover up those wing minutes. The problem with the Sixers is all of their viable dem- depth pieces are also where they have the most strength in terms of, of, of their starting lineup, having the versatility of Simmons and Harris and Butler. So those players struggling would be easier to overcome than the center or the point guard spot where they just don't have real viable options to go to. Uh, That to me is the biggest concern with the bench is that the, the more specific roles you don't have a real answer for.
1: Yeah. um, And, you know, just to kind of take this a step further, when we talk about, uh, when we talk about depth and we talk about how much the bench matters, it's also important to point out that the Sixers like fourth and fifth best players, let's call them Tobias and, and JJ, are probably the two best fourth and fifth best players in the league, right? So what that means is that your bench probably matters less because you can stagger your starters so many ways. You can have a lineup of, like, Tobias Harris and Boban and Mike Scott and James Ennis and TJ and just run the offense through Tobias Harris, and it's not a total disaster because you have a guy like that. Um, you you Even though you don't have, like, a six-man coming in and making a scoring impact— you always have someone on the court that's offensively capable and that you can just run your offense through. So it, it's, it is, it, it does make me a little bit less concerned for the playoffs because I think you're going to see every starter probably playing 36 minutes a game at least. Um, and you basically just have to survive with whatever, 15 minutes of Mike Scott and 12 minutes of James Ennis and, Probably eight or nine minutes of TJ and, wh- and then whatever the hell they do at backup center. Um, so I, I don't know. It's, it's hard to say, but we have seen, um, like the Boston game, for example. I mean, the Sixers were like a plus 10 or something with Embiid in the game and, and a minus whatever with him off. And that was only, you know, Embiid played 38 minutes and, and you can see how quickly things dissipate when, uh, when the bench comes in. So, it's gonna be it's gonna be something we just we just have to wait and see. I'm like I like I said to the last question. I'm very pessimistic about the bench, but I'm not entirely sure how much it'll matter.
0: Yeah, you you just need to not get steamrolled in the ten minutes that and or Simmons sit. Like it shouldn't be that difficult, but here we are. Um, here we are. Yeah. All right. This one from Legs, sad sports fan at Leg Sanity. Well, it makes sense that Shake Milton and Zaire Smith likely won't play in the playoffs. Because of a lack of experience, shouldn't they be given a look? Due to their skill sets being what the team needs,
1: um, I guess so. I mean, I put it this way: I would play Shake Milton over Jonathan Simmons. Sure, um, me too. Yep. And I would uh, convert
0: yeah. his contract right now and 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 cut. You know, Cork Moz isn't going to be here. Justin Patton's not going to be here. Um, Jonathan Simmons better not be here next year. Uh I I <laughs> yeah. wouldn't lose any sleep if, you know, cutting any one of them, even if Shake Milton never plays a game, just to have him available for the playoffs. And and just to reiterate, Shake Milton right now cannot play in the playoffs. You have to convert his two-way contract to an NBA contract to do so, which is why we're talking about that.
1: Yeah. Um and you know, like we've said, th- that's really one injury away from happening. If Oh yeah. James, yep. If James Ennis pulls a hammy, I mean, Shake Milton you're up so, yeah. Which it was, I, it was
0: I, interesting to me that Brown, and they pretty much said, like, don't expect Shake Milton or Zaire Smith to be in the playoff rotation. It was interesting that when James Ennis missed two games, they pretty much slotted Shake directly into that role.
1: Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, it, you would think that uh, if he was that set on doing so, he would want to get John Simmons some minutes just to keep him fresh or just to see what he has. But he went straight to Shake Milton. So, I mean... Even if that was just a play in terms of Shake gives us the best chance of winning the game, well, then that right there makes the case for him to be converted. Um, so, yeah, I, 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 wonder, I wonder if we will see that. I'm, I'm not really sure, but, I mean, Shake is their, whatever, ninth best player, so <laughs> they might need him.
0: Oh, God. Um, so, I, Zaire, to me, I would just write off. Like, you might get to see him once or twice just to kind of get him some experience, get him in an an NBA game, especially when they clinch that third seed and there's not a whole lot to play for. But to expect him after missing all that time and, you know, being, you know, a young, inexperienced sort of project player anyway, to expect him to come into an NBA playoff rotation is just, to me, wildly optimistic. Like, that would be unfair to the kid. Um, And to be honest, if you watch some of his G League games, when he first came back, he doesn't look like he's ready to do that. Like, the, he's just missed a lot of time playing basketball. Shake, you know, he's a little older. I think he's, what, 22. Um, and has a, a skill set that you can plug and play a little bit easier. Like, yeah, he played, he was a focal point offensively for the Blue Coats, but you can put him in there, play him off ball as a spot-and-shoot, uh, catch-and-shoot, uh, spot-up guy. And he can, you know, he at least has a skill set to make those shots. Um, he can make decent decisions with the basketball. He's got some length defensively, although he's still got a lot to work on, on that end. Would I have confidence in him playing? Not necessarily, not in the NBA playoff situation, but he's closer to me than shake is and a more realistic. They should do this than saying, making that same case with shake. Um, and like you said, he's probably their ninth or 10th best, I would have more confidence in him than, than Jonathan Simmons, which is, Again, it says a lot about where the Sixers bench is at a fifty, whatever what was he 56th pick, fifty-fourth, 50- fifty,
1: yeah, fifty-fourth, I think. A um, late
0: second-round pick on a two-way contract that's played what maybe one hundred and seventy NBA minutes. I would take <laughs> over Jonathan Simmons.
1: Jesus, uh, let me ask you this: this is a, this is not a Millbag question. This is a, this is a Mike question. Um, if you had to choose one Sixer bench player to hit a wide-open three, who would you choose?
0: So Mike Scott would rush it. He's the most capable, but he rushes every shot.
1: If, if it were a contested three, it's Mike Scott for sure. Right, sh- for sure. But I'm asking wide open.
0: It might be I shake. Think shake. It might be I shake. think it's shake. I think it's
1: shake. I think that's the answer.
0: Mike Scott has a case, though. So he's just, he'll, he'll rush a wide open shot and make it more difficult than it needs to be. And the quick release is great because he can get those contested shots off. But sometimes it's like, dude, just slow down and, and relax yourself a little bit. Um, he's a, you know, he's a good, albeit streaky shooter. Um, uh, so I would think about Mike Scott, but shake, shake being in this running is certainly a, uh, you know, it, it's a, I feel like everything we say is like, well, that, that's proof of how bad the Sixers bench is, but <laughs> yeah. it's also true in everything that we're saying. Yep. Uh, let's see. What is shake Milton up to in his NBA minutes? 165 minutes. I was pretty damn close. Pretty damn close. Jeez. 71 career points, 11 made three-pointers. And we're talking about him being the best shooter on the Sixers bench. <laughs>
1: what, a right. what a world.
0: What uh, a world. From Jeff Blouser at Real J Maz. Is Jonah Bolden the new Rashawn Holmes? <laughs>
1: um, I think they're two different players. I think Bolden is closer to being someone you could ask to contribute Uh, in the playoffs. I just don't think Rashawn was ever, ever had a natural position. Um, I mean, he's only six, eight. And if you're going to be, if you're going to be a center at six foot eight, you have to be just an absolute savant on the defensive end. And Rashawn is not that. Savant uh, is
0: not the word I would have used. Yeah. Yep.
1: Yeah. And, uh, you know, Bolden, there's an argument to be made that he's kind of in between positions as well. But I think Bolden might be a guy who you look at and say could either play the four or the five. Whereas Rashawn was like you're not really comfortable with either. Um, So I I see I see the similarity between like last year when Brett was playing Amir all the time and everybody was clamoring for him to play Rashawn, and it's kind of the same thing year with Bolden and uh, Boban. Um, But I mean, if you gave me the choice between two players to play backup center in the playoffs this year, I'm, I'm definitely taking Bolden.
0: Yeah. So th- there's similarities uh, and and part of it is that sort of backup quarterback phenomenon that you mentioned where, you know, the big man who's not playing is always the most appealing big man on the team uh, to fill that role. You know, he could Boban. We all know his weaknesses. Amir last year, we all knew his weaknesses. So the athletic young kid gets a, a little bit of a bump because it's, he's the unknown and he's the higher upside version of that. Um, and they have a lot of, similarities in that their biggest weakness right now is their decision making. Um, you know, can they make the reads to be in the right rotations and to be in the right spot defensively to actually make use of their gifts. And there's some similarity there. Uh, the difference is Bolden is a first year player, whereas Rashawn is, was a third year player. Um, and whereas it is common for a first year player to, you know, sort of be in that spot where his, his rotations aren't there. Uh, You need to see some development over the two years that that Rashawn just never showed. But the key difference to me, like you said, first of all, I trust Bolden's three ball way more than I trusted Rashawn's, which always seemed like a novelty when it went in. Um, But also, Bolden is, like you alluded to, more of a legitimate perimeter defender than Holmes was, much more. Like, you can switch him under guards and he can hold his own. You can put him at the four and he can defend, you know, sort of stretch fours. But he's also a a little bit more credible of an interior defender too because he has superior length. So I think all of that, there's more upside to Bolden. When it's clicking, it makes more, you know, it looks more the part. But there's still some of the similar weaknesses in terms of reads that make them not reach their defensive potential. The one difference offensively, of course, is that Rashawn was just an absolute elite role man, which is something that Bolden is okay at. Uh, but not quite at that level. I mean Rashawn was one of the best role men in the league to be honest with his athleticism and how quickly he got off the ground. Um, but that was that was about all he consistently gave. It. I remember watching Rashawn at Bowling Green and he was you know winning defensive player of the year in that conference. And I'm like no he's a better offensive player than he is defensive. And it's not mm. necessarily something you look at and you see a high skill level like he wasn't he was making threes I think his last year there, but you didn't really project that out to be a good shot. Um, he wasn't creating out of the post at an NBA level, but you saw an offensive role for him. Whereas defensively, like I said, it's always just been, is he, you know, really reading what's going on around him and making those, um, correct decisions. And he's he's just never done that. Even when he was blocking shots at Bowling Green.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I I looked it up recently and Rashawn has not attempted a three this year. Um, which is interesting because I I felt like that was sort of an integral part of him having a long NBA career. If he was going to stick around, he he would have had to develop that shot, but who knows? Who knows? But bottom line, Bolden is, is an upgrade over Rashawn Holmes.
0: Yep. Yep. And Rashawn is now 25, going to be 26 by the time next season starts. And without that development of that three point shot, or really any kind of defensive instincts you can rely upon, it is, you know, he just hasn't made the, uh, the progress in the last four years. So, a shame. Yep. All right, we will get back to the mailbag in a bit. But before we do that, a quick word from BetOnline. March Madness is upon us, and it's another huge month in sports across the NBA and NCAA. And there's only one place to get in on all this action, BetOnline.ag. Support your podcast by going to clnsmedia.com and use promo code CLNS50 for a 50% sign-up bonus. Now you can go online and use your mobile phone to sign up at betonline.ag where you can try live in-game betting where you can participate with all the action with every play. Once again, use your promo code CLNS50 for a 50% sign-up bonus. That's CLNS50 for a 50% sign-up bonus. Betonline.ag, your online sportsbook experts. All right, next question from... We're going to get into some theoretical nba draft stuff which i will let you sort of take the reins on because i haven't quite done all of my draft prep yet from kurt kurt underscore bsh please listen to uh, broad street hockey and read broad street hockey better draft prospect at the time of the draft zion or joel if you didn't have the health concerns
1: i love this question i absolutely love this question um I also
0: feel like I need a little more time. I read these questions like a little bit before we started podcasting. I'd really need some time to think about it too. But it is yeah. a great question.
1: Yeah, I'm going to try and think about it on the fly here. Um, I will say this.
0: To be MB- fair, if, 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 if we say something stupid, like I said, I saw this maybe a half an hour before we started recording the podcast. I sent it to Mike maybe two minutes before we started recording the podcast. I'm real good at giving people a heads up here. So if we <laughs> miss something obvious, it is not Mike's fault
1: yeah uh don't hold this against me right. but um it's it's hard to say it's hard to say if if joel were um if joel were a freshman in college right now and we were seeing him i think we would be um nitpicking the idea of him being j- just the fact that he's a big man yep in today's nba i think a lot of people would gravitate towards zion because you know not just not just being switchable on defense but you know it there's a clearer path for a wing creator to be whatever a top five player in the league than there is for a center I mean that's just that's just a fact um I, I think there would be a lot of people who would take Zion for that reason. Um, but that being said, I think that Joel from a talent perspective, sheer talent not factoring in, I mean athleticism is included but not the only element of talent. Um I think Joel is more talented. He he's probably the most talented prospect I've ever seen come into a draft. Um and you just saw you just saw how quickly basketball clicked for Joel. And it was like you know game 1 he was sort of like a rim running center, a shot blocking center and then like game 15 he was doing the dream shake and um just dominating games, even when only scoring like 12 points. So, God, it's like impossible to say. It's easy to look at it now and say, hey, Joel Embiid is like, whatever, the sixth best player in the league. And uh, and uh like, how could you take any draft prospect over that? But I think it's really close, but I would go with Embiid.
0: Yeah, so I, I remember when I scouted joel in the draft and i was super high on joel you know i had him said i would have taken him number one even after the foot injury uh which was not a popular opinion at the time Uh, in fact there's another sixers podcast who said that you couldn't draft another injured big man uh won't mention any names but they did a real bang-up job uh celebrating how right they were (laughs) you know i i remember going back and Basically, I had him over Carl Anthony Towns. Uh, I remember saying that w- when Towns came out, you know, without the health concerns, I had him over Carl Anthony Towns. And that was, again, pretty unpopular. The only two I put really in his tier as a prospect was Kevin Durant back in, and I, I went back, I think, to 2005. So it would have been about 10 years worth of draft. Kevin Durant uh, and, and Greg Odin, who, quite frankly, I, I think people forget how good of a prospect he was because of what happened. But those two in that draft. And then, um, Anthony Davis. And that was sort of like my top tier of prospects. And there was, you know, a couple other really interesting ones. Um, Kyrie Irving was, was a really good prospect at that time. Um, You know, Steph Curry is an interesting one because I don't think anybody really saw him having this kind of career. Um, Neither same with, with Giannis who you would put in that tier, but I mean, he was such an unknown. It'd be really interesting to see what would happen if Giannis would come out now when we have a little more knowledge into the, um, you know, the foreign leagues and the lower level foreign leagues, and that was really the key with Giannis, is he was not playing high level European basketball. Uh, but he those two would be in that tier, but we just didn't know that at the time with the available information that we had. Derek Rose was highly thought of. I thought he was a much better prospect than Derek Rose. I had much fewer concerns. I mean when you start talking about sheer upside, there were just very few that would have matched him. Now Zion is interesting and I haven't watched enough Zion to really make this determination, but he is such a freak. And I think, I don't think people quite give him enough credit for being a smart basketball player too. And with the way the NBA is trending, I could see a lot of people taking Zion over Embiid. Would I do that? Not now, not knowing what we know, but at the time, I mean, I was super intrigued by Embiid and his two way dominance. And like you said, the way he just learned seemingly on a week-to-week basis. I mean, just... His post-ups at Kansas to start the year were a train wreck. A month in the season, he was dropping dimes that you didn't see until people were fifth, sixth, seventh year in the NBA. Like, he just... He progressed so quickly that there was nothing I looked at and I said, that guy won't be able to do it at an NBA level. There was no part of his game that I looked at and I said, that's a real legitimate concern outside of the foot and the back. So, what I... I, I would it's a great question. I don't know if I can really answer this question without having a little bit of, um, survivorship bias in the fact that we've now seen what Joel Embiid has become. And we don't yet know with Zion. It's a, it's a great question though. It is a really great question. And that's my way of saying, I don't have an answer.
1: Yeah. I'm in the same, I'm in the same boat, kind of a cop out, but
0: <laughs> yes, it is.
1: I love, I love the question.
0: It's a great question that, uh, I, to be honest, I just have to watch more of Zion before I'm going to really commit to that. Um, Which brings us to another hypothetical Zion question. What would the Sixers do if they landed the number one overall pick? Which they, of course, can do because they get the uh, Kings pick if it lands at number one overall. Uh, Would they keep Zion and build the team around him even though they're competing and trying to win a title next year? Or would they trade trade Zion either before or after the draft for a superstar? And I guess, I guess if we're going to put a name to a superstar, since it's the name that everyone's been talking about since, you know, February would be an Anthony Davis level player, maybe not Anthony Davis himself. Cause you don't know how well he's going to fit on his team, but an Anthony Davis level player. So you're talking yeah. like a borderline MVP candidate.
1: Right. But the Sixers already have, you know, they already have acquired those two stars and, they, I mean, the, they might be paying them anyway. I mean, obviously, the, you would see the draft lottery before free agency and whatnot. But you have those guys' bird rights, and that's a big reason you traded for Tobias Harris. Um, I, I don't. I mean, one one alternative is like if they were to win the lottery and they take him, they just hit the reset button and let Butler walk and maybe sign Tobias Harris, and you might set your timeline back another couple of years, but. Everybody's still. I mean, the oldest guy is Tobias Harris at 27, and you just grow Simmons and Zion and Embiid and, and Tobias Harris, and um, maybe take a slight step back in the present. But I think your future ceiling is unbelievable. Um, I don't know. It's so hard to wrap my head around any of these scenarios, but uh, there's definitely there's definitely some fit concerns though with him and Simmons and Embiid. I mean, oh for sure. That just you you. I couldn't tell you the last time you saw that little shooting in a championship core. Um,
0: I also couldn't tell you the last time you saw that much physical dominance in a championship core though, either. I mean, the only comparable thing really is that Miami team.
1: That's true. That's true. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think if you get, if you have the chance to draft Zion, I think you have to keep him. Yeah. I think, I think there's a, I think there's a pretty significant chance that Zion um, is roughly an Anthony Davis level player, if not better. And you could get him on a rookie contract and grow him. I mean, you you just like to get a player like that basically under your team's control for um, whatever eight years or however long you sign his second contract for. It's just a chance that you can't pass up.
0: Yeah, and Anthony Davis, he's got. Essentially because he's got a player option after that, but he's got one year left at 27 mil. Um, so you have to, and look, maybe you can make the argument that with a, you know, a respected head coach and a team that should be making an NBA finals run that, you know, he'd stick around, but you never know. Like the pe- these superstars sometimes want their own team to build around. They want rosters constructed a certain way. If there's any kind of a, a, a struggle in how they mesh on the court, that could factor into that. So there is, I don't know what percentage odds it is, but there is a a scenario where Anthony Davis is only there for one season. And as much as I think Anthony Davis, people forget how young he is and that he's only 26 and just turned 26. You know, that's still, you're losing a lot of prime years from Zion Williamson too. Uh, You're talking about a guy, like you said, nine years of team control, 27 million instead of roughly what, maybe 10 million in salary over the next four years. Uh, a guy who's going to be on a super max relatively quickly because he's, you know, only got one year left on, on this, his second contract. And I'm just, you know, if you're giving me the option, I'm almost always going to go with the one that has the longest chance of sustaining and the longest chance of having not just a championship caliber team, but having a decade of a championship caliber team. And, you know, right now, a lot of times when you talk about the Sixers in their future and you hate talking about this, but it's sort of the reality of big men is how long can Joel Embiid be an MVP caliber player? You hope you hope Joel Embiid at, what, 26, is he? 25, 26? 20, 25,
1: just turned 25.
0: Okay. You hope he's got nine more years of, you know, MVP caliber play in it. That That's what everybody hopes for. That's quite frankly what everybody in the league hopes for because the league's better when Joel Embiid's playing basketball. But you don't know. Like, there's, there's again, what percentage chance, you don't know. But there's, there are outcomes where maybe you have a, five more years of Joel Embiid at a dominant level. Like we've seen, you know, careers go in wacky directions, especially with big men and lower body injuries. So there's pretty much any scenario that I would want Zion for the next nine years. I mean, that is just, it is, is I would love to have this debate come mid may. Um, but it is something where, uh, where where I would probably err on a side of youth and controllability And most importantly, where you can have a a, a decade of, you know, finals contention.
1: Yeah, I'm with that. Uh, I will also add that if if there is a scenario where they could do this, a starting five of Simmons and Bede, Harris, Butler and Zion would be (laughs) very fun to watch.
0: No shooting, but boy, matching up with that would be fun.
1: Yeah, they, they would have absolutely zero shooting. Especially, you would if,
0: really need Jimmy Butler to start shooting the goddamn basketball. Yes,
1: which he doesn't appear interested in.
0: No. Oh, last night, end of the first first half, he had a wide open corner three in transition, pump fake, hesitated, dribbled around for ten seconds, took a long two, and it's just like this. And look, he's outside of last night because he struggled. He's playing pretty good basketball. Like he's doing a lot of things that this team needs from. You know, a secondary ball handler to not turning it over to getting the free throw line to still, even if his defense isn't maybe what we expected, he's still the third best defender on the team. But shooting that open three, man, it's just, it's a catch and shoot three is such low hanging fruit. And he's always made them at a respectable clip in his career. Load up, man. Load up. Ugh.
1: <laughs> Load up, brother. Ugh. Um, but yeah, you're right. And we should, we should talk about that more. It's been pretty quiet, but, um, he has been noticeably better over the past two weeks or so. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, really, he's just trying harder. That's it. I mean, there was, like, there was a the stretch of, whatever, eight games after the All-Star break where uh, Embiid was out. It was unbelievable how, how passive he was and how little. It just seemed like he was so clearly taking nights off. The one that stands out the most is New Orleans, um, that game where he scored, like, I want to say 12 points and played absolutely zero defense and continually got the ball against Frank Jackson in the post and would just pass out of it, I like, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe what, what he was doing in that game. But he has been very, very good the past two weeks or so, and I think that's a really good development uh, for this team heading into the playoffs.
0: Yep, for sure. Right, and it's always been the debate. Is he saving himself for the playoffs? Does he have another gear? And it's starting to look like he does. All right, so. Yeah,
1: it definitely looks that way, yeah
0: drum 76 theology at P Jefferson on limb. What's wrong with the Sixers defense? We have the roster to be an elite defensive team, but we are underperforming in this area. I mean, ah, we've, that's been it's the subject of so many articles and so many podcasts of late that I almost feel like we have talked about this. It is probably the biggest thing that I hold, you know, on Brett in terms of where they are this season. Yeah, you know, I don't think uh, – you go ahead first because I'm sure I've talked about this on the podcast many times.
1: Yeah. Um. I mean, I'll, I'll just th- throw this out there first. This is probably the most concerning stat that I've seen. Um, the Sixers are first in transition defense in the league. They're number one, and they're 22nd in half-court defense. And when you get to the playoffs, and obviously now, here's what everything I'll say. slows down. And, transition and you have to defend – that Sorry, that,
0: that number you're referencing that's efficiency correct
1: Not yeah, yeah. Frequency. efficiency yeah
0: so most people you talk to will say transition opportunities um it's much it's sort of like three-point shooting where it's more how well do you generate or deny the looks than it is how frequently they're converted right because there aren't very many transition opportunities basically if somebody gets a shot up within the first six to eight seconds of the shot clock it's almost impossible to consistently defend those at a high level. Um, So there might be some variance in terms of the shot didn't go in or they made a turnover. But if you were playing good transition defense, you wouldn't be giving up those opportunities. And the Sixers, if you look at their frequency ratings from cleaning the glass, they're both very low in terms of denying off of live ball rebounds and off of live turnovers. So basically what I'm saying is there could be some regression in those transition opportunities
1: Hmm. okay I hadn't thought about that but um that I mean that's just adding fuel to the fire adding uh more concern to the mix but um but yeah to to answer this question I mean I think a, a significant part of it is just how dreadful most of the roster was for uh the bulk of the year outside of Simmons Embiid and Butler Right. I, mean, I think
0: I think that's where I would start off. I don't think they have an elite defensive roster. I think they have absolutely. two very good defenders and one occasionally good defender and then a whole lot of question marks.
1: Yep, and there was a time where um like after the Butler trade but before the Harris trade that which was the biggest chunk of their year, um I mean just go up and down the roster. I mean, it's JJ Reddick, Landry shamett Wilson Chandler, Mike Muscala, um uh Furkan Korkmaz, I mean, there is not one even average defender in that group. Nope. Like, no, nobody's even, like, approaching mediocrity. Every single player on the team outside of Simmons, Butler, and Embiid is a decidedly negative defender. And I think that's where you have to start as far as this defensive rating goes. I actually haven't checked. Do you know what they are since uh, the trade deadline?
0: I don't. I, I looked this up recently and every month they were somewhere between 11th and 13th. So I'd be surprised if they have been great. Like that was maybe a week ago. Um, so they were 11th or so at that time in March. I'd be surprised if that's improved substantially.
1: Yeah. Jeez. Um, but yeah, as far as, as far as it goes now, I mean, they're, and, I they're mean, still a, kind a, of a-,
0: a chunk of those games are without Joel too. So it's not even a great, right. great sample.
1: That's true. That's true. Um, but yeah. And, and, you know, as as far as it stands now, I think this is a better defensive, uh, roster they have than it was before the trade deadline, but it's still clearly not great. And, um, you know, last year, I think they were able to survive off of, um, three guys in the Simmons, um, Simmons, Embiid, and Covington who were engaged on a nightly basis and, you know, who, who prided themselves on defense and now they're trying to do it on two or two and a half with Butler kind of coming in and out. Um, but I think that, I think when you get to the playoffs, I mean, I just think that the Sixers physical profile as a team, um, suggests that, that they will improve with just the level of engagement that you'll see in the playoffs. I think you'll get a better Jimmy Butler and you've a maximized maximize Ben Simmons, um, and, and you know, they even have, like, physical bodies off the bench in Ennis and Scott who can just kind of, like, like I said, just physical presences that they clearly did not have before when it was when their first subs off the bench were Mike Moscala and Furkan Korkmaz and Landry Schammett. Um I mean, those guys are just not going to make a physical impact in a playoff series.
0: Yeah, and I mean, I think, you know, I do think familiarity plays a part in that, like, especially in terms of, Communication. Like there are just so many times where they don't look to be on the same page. They don't look like they're all making the same reads. Um looking it up since the All Star break, they are eleventh um in in defensive rating, uh, which which makes sense. That's what it seemed like they were trending towards. Like I said, eight games were without Joel Embiid. Um with Joel Embiid on the court wow. That's interesting. With Joel Embiid on the court since the uh since the um since the all-star break, they actually have a worse defensive rating than with him on the court wow. with him on the bench. I mean, a one Oh nine point two with him on the court, one Oh six point three with him on the bench, which I don't expect that to stick. Like I almost wonder who they were playing in those games. Um, and they have a great record with him beat on the court. So I don't expect that to, uh, to, to, carry on. Um, I mean, clearly like we have years of, of data, that suggests Joel Embiid is an MVP or a defensive player of the year caliber player. So, um, but yeah, yeah we I, like did I,
1: have a, a few games like the Atlanta game and the Orlando game where Embiid was yep. clearly not trying on that end. Maybe that's uh,
0: I'm sure that contributing factor, so. to those numbers yep. there. But and the other games have been pretty tough games. Um, yep, you know the Celtics, uh, the Bucks, but uh, yeah, no, that was a little bit surprising just on fir- first glance. Um, but not like I said, not something I, I put any value in whatsoever. Like I expect those two. Revert back to what we expect. But anyway, going back, you know, I think communication of this team is not where it needs to be. You know, I think obviously Reddick is a way below average defender. And quite frankly, Tobias Harris is a below average defender as well. Um, so you've got two very good defenders in that starting lineup. And then you've got one occasionally good defender in that starting lineup one dreadful defender in that starting lineup and one below average. So it's, you know, it's it's in a league that has made so much with the um spacing the floor, it's a little bit more difficult for MB to make quite the same impact that he would have been able to five even five years ago. Um uh, he still makes a tremendous impact, but it's just a little easier to not game plan him out, but um, you know, attack him a little bit. But they just don't have the depth. And uh, like we we just went through a starting lineup. When you start looking at the you know, you when your point guard and your center off the bench are huge points that you can attack. Like it's it's it it's difficult. Um, they just don't have the, the the depth of the pieces. You know, I don't think a whole lot of it. You know, a lot of people will look at the switching. Um, and that you know there are trade offs in terms of switching. Like you will get a weaker defender on the other team's best player at times. You will give up those you know long jump shots when you're zoning the pick and roll and not switching because of Embiid. Like, they will make trade-offs. But I don't think that's the primary problem with this team. I don't think it's an all that difficult. Like, a lot of people have said, Look, maybe they're having miscommunications because of the the switching scheme. No, I don't. Like, switching is a pretty easy scheme to come together on. Like, of all the ways to defend a pick and roll, that's probably the easiest. Like, if you blitz or trap a pick and roll, you've got a lot more rotations and communications to worry about. They're just so new that they can't even really be on the same page on this. So I do think newness prevents them from quite reaching their theoretical ceiling, but I don't think their theoretical ceiling is that of an elite team.
1: Yeah, I, w- I would have to agree with that. Um, and it's funny. I, j- I just think we're going to look back on so many numbers from this year and just think like, I I don't even know what to make of this because the team was in so much flux. I mean, you know, when, when we look at not just like Defensive rating, but like on-off numbers with, you know Simmons and Embiid and and just like lineup data, it's going to be so convoluted to look back on. I mean, just everything is just so hard to interpret because of sample size, because of having three different teams, because of the newness, because of schemes. I mean, it's it's so hard to interpret these numbers from this year. Yep.
0: Yeah, no, the, the team you know had many options over the summer. Uh, they chose to go primarily with shooting in most of the pieces that they added, and there are there are some drawbacks to that, and they need to upgrade both the backup center, which is hopefully from Bolden getting more experience and becoming better defensively, and the backup point guard spot, which brings us into our last question. We had a few more that I wanted to get to, but we are now well over an hour into this podcast, and I'm getting sick of hearing myself talk. So a final question from Jack Henry at Cheersmate55. You're Elton Brand. Do you re-sign Shake Milton at one point five to two million per year for three years, or TJ at four to five million per year for three years? You can only pick one.
1: Um, I'm gonna have to go with Shake. Yep. I have really uh, just become increasingly pessimistic about um, TJ's long-term role here. I just think that the backup point guard on this team has to be able to shoot threes. Um, especially if you're going to consider playing some minutes of uh, a backup point guard alongside Ben Simmons. Um, I think that you've seen a handful of times in uh, the past few weeks where teams have just completely left TJ on the perimeter. Um, Last night he made a three and it was his first three pointer since February 12th. Um, And it's, You know, TJ has been an inconsistent player all year. Um, I don't think you can point to anything that TJ has gotten better at in his NBA career. Um, I mean, maybe mid-range jumpers, but that was already what he was best at. Um, I just, and and I love TJ, and I think he has a great impact on the locker room. I think he's a great glue guy, and everybody loves him. But just as far as on-court fit goes it it is a real challenge and I even wonder what his role in the playoffs is going to look like um, with how much teams will will leave him on the perimeter how much they'll seek him out on defense um, uh, you know I, I just I think I would have to go with shake and just and just hope that you can grow him into that sort of role and uh, you know I definitely trust his his jump shot and his defensive versatility a lot more.
0: Yeah, no, and look, TJ is, you know, there, there is something to be said about watching a guy who gives so much effort. And, you know, I think it's A, fun to watch, and B, I think, you know, that can really lift the team at times. And once every five or six games, TJ will come in and give you a real boost, a dose of energy that, that the team was lacking. And on the exact right matchup, some perimeter defense the team was lacking. But when you have someone who's such a... um. You know, such a liability against a lot of the matchups he'll have to go against defensively, and also then doesn't shoot and is such a tough fit with both Ben Simmons and also Joel Embiid. It's hard to make a consistently positive contributor out of somebody with that profile, no matter how hard he plays. Um, so, do I know what Shake Milton's going to become? No. Clearly, I think he's, I mean, everyone thinks he's a better shooter, and that's a very key skill. And that makes him a little easier to slot into lineups and rotations and pairings. But almost just as importantly, like he's younger, a little more upside, you get to to develop him and see what he can become. You know, I think he's like five years younger than TJ, who just turned 27. But also at 1.5 to 2 million a year, if he ends up not developing, you know, you can move that very easily. Whereas TJ at four to five million a year, he's a very team dependent and, and, and roster dependent player. It would be harder to move that contract. Um, So to me, TJ is a third backup, a change of pace. Um, You know, someone you bring in every now and then with the right matchups and let him sort of jumpstart your energy level. Um, Four to five mil a year is is a bit too much for that, especially on his team. Like he might get that from another team. I mean, we said this, you can go back and listen to our, our podcast in the summer. Our stance was always that, if the Sixers are a team that is willing to give the most money and the biggest role to TJ McConnell, then something really bad has gone on. And I mean, something really bad has gone on this year, but I still think with the Sixers roster construction, they shouldn't be the team to give the biggest role and the most amount of money to TJ. And I still believe that. So I will go with shake as well.
1: Yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, the question is that you can only have one. There's a chance they bring, There is. I mean, obviously, shake will be back, but there's a chance they bring both of them back. Um, There is. I absolutely think there could be a place on this team for TJ as the third point guard. Like you said, change of pace guy, locker room guy. Um, Just
0: not 25 minutes a night.
1: Exactly. Yeah, exactly. All right. Um, Cool.
0: Sounds good. Thank you, Mike, for jumping on once again, and we will talk to you soon. And please do follow Mike on Twitter. What is it? M. O'Connor underscore NBA. Yep, yep, and uh read him over at theathletic.com. Slash Sixers, take care.
1: It ain't hard to tell. I excel, then prevail. The mic is contacted, I attract clientele. My mic check is life for death, breathing the sniper's breath. I exhale
0: the yellow smoke of wood of the righteous steps.